do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that the babies are racist? Oh, I don't know. Do you agree with my idea that Republican senators from Texas are idiots? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Fantastic fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Don't laugh, Desi Doyen. (laughs) I say it occasionally, too. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. Glad you could join us here today uh, for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Okay, Desi Doyen, even as we go to air, I think it's still going on right now, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is facing her second day of Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on her nomination by President Biden to fill the Supreme Court seat being vacated this summer by Justice Stephen Breyer. Tuesday's hearings included uh, rounds of 30 minutes uh, of questions and answers from each of the 22 uh, members on the committee. So, yeah, still ongoing. And I got to say, I saw a lot of... From what I got to see of those hours and hours of uh, Q&As, I got to see a lot of performing and a lot of stuff and nonsense from GOP senators playing to their base, hoping to get on Fox News, perhaps, but very little on the actual qualifications of Judge Jackson. Uh, Desi Doyen, is that, uh, how does that <laughs> match up with your own uh, assessment? I would say you watched that, more of it than I did. Yes, and, and, and you know, those kinds of uh, hearings are very instructive, and I do recommend that if you have the time to spend on it, that it is worth watching to see the, um, the sausage being 
made, as it were. But um, I would say that Republicans most definitely dropped any attempts at subtlety. And I would also say that uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, Judge Jackson, has the patience of a saint and a poker face when it comes to listening to some pretty rude questions from Republicans. Rude, rude questions. Well, I, you know, I'm uh, disinclined, frankly, to play much of what went on on Tuesday. Yeah, lots of performing. Yeah, it was a lot of performing from what I was able to follow and and you know I'm sure other people will play it because some of it was just so stupid yeah but frankly uh, playing it even sharing it with you sort of privileges the lies that Republicans are hoping to sell plus you know it was all just so stupid and childish uh, I will give you one example just you know so you believe me uh, this from a Texas senator Ted Cruz questioning of Judge Jackson in which he seemed to want to try and claim that the first black female nominee to the high court was a secret critical race theory activist or something I'm only going to play a short clip here uh, to give you an idea of just how dumb this all was and a warning to our affiliate stations who may have automatic silence sensors um, <laughs> the the long pause that you will hear here actually happened. It is actually Judge Jackson trying to figure out how the hell to even, well, politely respond to Ted Cruz on this one. Do do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist? Senator. I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. And I don't even know what the hell book you're talking about, Ted Cruz, uh, claiming that babies are racist. Uh, anyway, uh, th- that's just to give you an idea. There was a lot of that. Hours and hours of that. Uh, among the substantive lines of questions and answers was was this one from uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Minnesota. from Minnesota, uh, regarding Democratic Senator, regarding the uh, respect for court precedent, starry decisis, as Republicans like to refer to it when they are pretending to give a damn about long-standing settled law that the current stolen and packed 6-3 to three Republican Supreme Court is frankly overturning at an alarming rate on everything from voting rights to uh, abortion rights to union rights to the right of executive branch agencies to create regulations based on statutes adopted by Congress and signed by the president. Uh, so here, here was a bit of substance in this exchange between uh, Klobuchar and Judge Jackson. The Supreme Court declined to review a case in which the 11th Circuit applied New York Times v. Sullivan. Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch each dissented from the decision not to grant cert, arguing that the court should reconsider its holding in Sullivan. How would you approach a case that sought to limit or overturn the central holding in New York Times v. Sullivan? Thank you, Senator. Anytime the court is... Uh, asked to revisit a precedent, there are criteria that the court uses to decide whether or not to um, overrule a precedent. New York Times versus Sullivan is 
a precedent, and stare decisis um, is very important. The principle that um, courts, the, the Supreme Court should maintain its precedents um, for predictability and stability in the law. If the court is asked to revisit a precedent, its criteria, what it looks at, are whether the precedent is wrong and, in fact, egregiously wrong, the court has said, um, whether there's been reliance on that precedent, and whether or not there are new facts or a new understanding of the facts. Those various criteria are what the court looks at to decide whether or not to overturn a precedent, and they would be what um, I would look at if I were confirmed to the Supreme Court. Moving off of the First Amendment questions, you, throughout the court's history, um, stare decisis, um, former justice, Minnesotan, uh, <laughs> Justice Harry Blackman, uh, who actually Justice Breyer succeeded on the court, uh, said in his concurrence in Planned Parenthood v. Casey about the court's decision to uphold Roe v. Wade, he said, what has happened today should serve as a model for future justices and a warning to all who have tried to turn this court into yet another political branch. What role do you think that stare decisis plays in protecting the independence of the judiciary and avoiding the perception uh, that the court is acting as another, quote, political branch? I think it plays a very important role um, as a, a doctrine that keeps keeps shifts from happening in the court. That, as I pre- previously mentioned, it's very important to have stability in the law for rule of law purposes, so that people can order themselves and predict predict their lives, given what the Supreme Court has already said. And if there were massive shifts uh, every time a new justice came on or um, every time new circumstances arose, there would be a concern that public confidence uh, would be eroded. And so stare decisis is a very important doctrine um, that the Supreme Court has established and, um, and it's one that furthers the rule of law in this country. Yeah, but do you think babies are racist, Judge Jackson? <laughs> uh, so uh, th- that was, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear the conversation about stare decisis because every time there is a uh, Republican nominee who comes up for these uh, nominations, uh, you know, they claim, uh, as Amy Coney Barrett did, as uh, Brett Kavanaugh did, oh, yes, they believe in precedent, that that's uh, absolutely sacred. And then they turn around and start overturning precedent, as we are seeing happening right now in the court with Roe v. Wade and much more as this uh, six to three far right majority on the court is having their way with decades of civil rights laws and everything else. Yeah, and and you may think that this, oh, you know, there's some things that they'll never overturn, but I would tell you that Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Republican, uh, earlier in the day discussed that she thought that the landmark ruling Griswold versus Connecticut, which gave women, married women, the right to use contraceptives, Mm -hmm. she said that was wrongly decided. And Senator Mike Braun of Utah, also a Republican, said that he felt that interracial marriage, the interracial marriage ruling, 
should have been decided by the states and not left up to the Supreme Court as a civil right to decide. Yeah, I know. These I mean, are very real open questions they, now. Uh, they, they really are. And I think people need to understand that. I think, uh, you know, whenever we have Mark Joseph Stern on this show, the court reporter from uh, Slate, constitutional expert, when he uh, comes on here, he tries to make that case. Pay attention, people. That's what this court is doing. Now, that court is still going to do that, no matter if uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is uh, confirmed or not, because the balance of the court will still be a stolen and packed 6-3 to in favor of the Republicans here. But this stuff is very important. So uh, please do pay attention, even though there's a lot of stuff and nonsense and noise and idiocy coming from the right during these hearings. And it underscores the importance of voting in the midterm elections in 2022 in November because the uh, the uh, control of the Senate, the Senate mm-hmm. majority that yeah. will decide any future Supreme Court nominations, that is up for grabs. Yep. All right. More, so more on those hearings, if and when uh, we find something that's either newsworthy or notable above and beyond the sort of red meat chum that Republicans are hoping to turn into 22nd sound bites that might land them on Fox News tonight. Uh, yesterday on the broadcast, we had a bit of time, uh, as usual, less than I would have liked to open up the phones to listeners to try and get some idea of why a huge bipartisan majority of Americans of, you know, of all parties support the actions that Joe Biden specifically has taken to date in response to Vladimir Putin's war on his uh, democratic sovereign neighbor of Ukraine. Why it is that Americans seem to support Joe Biden's actions there, but a majority of Americans still disapprove of the job that Joe Biden is doing overall. And it seems quite odd to me, according to recent polling anyway, for whatever those polls are worth, that there uh, there has not been the expected rally around the flag bump in the polls for a president that one would usually expect to see during times of war and or disasters. And as noted yesterday, we've got both on our hands right now in Ukraine, thanks to Putin's barbaric aggression against a neighboring uh, a neighboring country. So I got to say, so we opened the phones for a few minutes, uh, as usual, not enough time, but uh, opened the phones and I was surprised by how so many callers called in to say, essentially, well, we should just stay out of Ukraine, stay out of the Ukrainian situation entirely. It's none of our business. Now, uh, since I try to take callers who may not agree with me um, and, and sort of put them up at the top of the queue, the number of those callers that I was able to put on air is not necessarily representative of our overall listenership. But still, it it was actually kind of surprising to me that there were so many essentially willing to say, hey, Ukraine is none of our business. We should stop supplying them with weapons. We should leave them be. We should leave them on their own. And I kind of, you know, in thinking about it since then, you know, I think a lot of that kind of comes from years of justifiable complaints about the U.S. and its decades of military-industrial complex that, you know, has has armed the world and never seems to, you know, see a war that it doesn't like. So I think, you know, there is also justification, as we discussed in the run-up to the war and indeed in the years prior, in the argument that Russia is feeling sort of boxed in by an ever-eastward-expanding NATO coalition and 
at least until they launched an all-out assault on their neighboring country, I was certainly sympathetic to those concerns. But now it needs to be made clear that the U.S. Uh, washing its hands of this you know, barbaric humanitarian disaster that is being unleashed by Russia against Ukraine right now would not result in the, 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 the peace that I fear that many of our, our callers believed might actually occur if the U.S. said, you know what, we have nothing to do with this. We're stepping out. Good luck to you, Ukraine. I mean, without support by the West, you know, in both defensive military weapons and these crippling sanctions against the, the Russian economy, Putin would slaughter untold millions in Ukraine. And frankly, after taking that country, there's no reason to believe that he would not move on to the next ones, be they NATO nations like Poland or Hungary or Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Moldova, etc. Especially after he's already expressed an interest in reconstituting the old Soviet, not just the Soviet Union, but the Republican. The old, the old Russian Empire. The old Russian Empire, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, an, you know, an attack on, on Poland at this point, even an accidental one, as, as Russia is firing these long-range uh, missiles, this artillery uh, firing against western Ukraine, coming within, they're, and they're firing it from Russia in many cases, and these missiles are landing within miles of the Polish border. Uh, an attack like that, uh, a, 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 a bomb going off in, in Poland, that results, that is an attack on a NATO country, which all NATO signatory countries are required to respond to under Article 5 of, of, uh, of NATO's charter. And that's, you know, World War III. Leaving Ukraine to their own devices at this point against a nuclear-armed Russia not only results in the complete and total destruction of Ukraine and tens of millions of Ukrainians, if you care, but it also ends with a Russian takeover of Ukraine and more arguably, uh, more directly, leads to World War Three. And I think many in the anti-war left in this country, uh, amongst which I count myself, by the way, have, have sort of become used to the idea, as I said, justifiably, that the U.S. is is usually the aggressor in so many wars. Uh, or they're arming other countries as proxies for our own aggression. So by now, it feels like, you know, our natural sort of knee-jerk reaction is to simply call on the U.S. to pull out, to stop. Stop the aggression, U.S. No more wars. The problem is, in this case, at least for once, at least this time, the U.S. is actually not the aggressor here. Russia is. And yes, a case can absolutely be made that we had a hand in exacerbating the situation and pushing Eastern U uh, Europe towards this confrontation in recent decades. But frankly, as I see it, any argument against the U.S. and NATO's position in all of this went out the window, at least for now, as soon as Putin began this brutal assault on the entirety of Ukraine, not on some disputed border regions in the Donbass, not to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. They've already conceded that's not going to happen, and NATO in any event has never extended them the invitation, by the way. 
Ukraine has reportedly made clear during peace talks with Russia that, you know, as uh, that they're not going to be joining NATO, as well as offering military neutrality to try and end this conflict. As Russia has also pretended to want in exchange for not attacking them, they have offered those things, but Russia is still bombing. The brutal, barbaric attack, including massive war crimes against huge portions of the civilian population by Russian forces against Ukraine, that continues, and it is getting more and more barbaric by the day. And I'm not sure how any of that is defensible to any of our listeners, to anyone who calls themselves anti-war. No matter how much some of us may be used to seeing the U.S. as the bad guy in these overseas wars. That is not what is going on here. At least for now, uh, this is decidedly not that. And if you need to adjust your thinking for this one to accommodate this one, as I believe some of our listeners might, then please do. Please be on the right side of history here. That doesn't mean the U.S. is all perfect, is all right, nor does it mean that Russia is all bad or has been all bad, at least until the attack on Ukraine, in which, yes, I believe they have been very, very bad. I received a long and detailed email to Bradcast at bradblog.com from a listener following yesterday's program. I will call him PW with many links included in there. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, essentially arguing that uh, the case that Putin's declaration of wanting to denazify Ukraine is no joke, that it should be taken seriously, that there are many, many Nazis in Ukraine, including in the government, and that while Putin is bad, Nazis are even worse. The uh, the last line of PW's email reads, quote, my point of it all is this. The suffering of Ukrainian civilians is a very real thing, and so is the assertion that Ukraine's fascists have more power than you might think. Their victims also deserve protection. Putin can be a criminal and have a real reason to call certain people Nazis and then wipe them out. Hate Putin? Of course. Hate Nazis? Even more so. That was from uh, PW from this uh, long email, which I, I greatly appreciate, by the way. I uh, disagree with a lot of it, as I uh, shared with him, as I have been sharing with him since then. But uh, you'll not be surprised to learn I don't care for Nazis either. I, uh, you know, like Ukraine's president, I happen to be Jewish for one thing, so I have a good reason to hate Nazis as much as anyone else, whether they are in my country or anyone else's. And by the way, there are a lot of them in my country. Arguably, unlike in Ukraine, uh, some of them actually have seats inside of our parliament, our Congress, not to mention many of them in law enforcement and in our armed forces. So the so-called Azov movement, the ultra-nationalist Nazis, yes, Nazis in Ukraine, they have no real power, at least in the Ukrainian parliament. They have no seats in the Ukrainian parliament. They're not trying to gain any seats in the Ukrainian parliament. Even as the current government recognizes that a portion of the country does, or at least did, identify with that far-right faction. 
But they have no real political power in the country, much less any that actually somehow threatens Russia itself, as Vladimir Putin is is trying to pretend, is trying to use as a justification for his attack. Moreover, I should add, as I've mentioned before, Jewish members of my own direct family, my great-grandparents, fled Ukraine before the two world wars as the Russian pogroms were wiping out and or dislocating many Jews in the region. I wouldn't be here in America today if it wasn't for the for that uh, diaspora of Jews around the world who were facing oppression by those who hated Jews in that region. To quote my emailer PW again, hate Putin, of course, hate Nazis even more so. And as I replied when the to PW, when the Nazis are committing genocide of an entire sovereign nation's civilian population, let me know. I'll be with you. Until then, the role of Adolf Hitler apparently will be played in tonight's performance by Vladimir Putin. And all of this, at least for now, at least until we have the opportunity to open up our phone lines again to callers on the topic in, in, as time allows in, in the future. All of this is to, to sort of underscore this very short interview on NPR this morning for those still tied to the Russian propaganda that this is somehow about denazifying Ukraine. It isn't. It's about exercising and, and expand, expanding. The expansion of Vladimir Putin's power as he faces domestic difficulties in his own nation. This brief interview, I just want to share it with you on NPR this morning uh, by uh, NPR's investigative correspondent in Ukraine, Tim Mack, uh, who spoke with Rabbi Avraham Wolf, a longtime leading Jewish rabbi in Odessa, from whence part of my own family comes, by the way, about the idea of Ukraine being run by Nazis, as Putin and Russia have repeatedly described the Ukrainian government over and over, both before and since their assault on Ukraine, claiming to be merely trying to denazify Ukraine and the Ukrainian government. Rabbi Avraham Wolf spoke frankly in a synagogue built in 1898 by his wife's great-great-grandfather. I wake up in the morning, and somebody tell me, I live in a Nazi country. I don't know, I don't know how to say how much it's, it's, it's stupid to talk about it. Wolf says he's never experienced anti-Semitism in the city. Never. Not a single time. No, never in 30 years. But Wolf is a student of history, and he recalls the Nazi siege of Odessa in 1941. He says he's determined not to let his community suffer if a siege happens again. He's stockpiled thousands of pounds of flour, pasta, sugar, and buckwheat. So uh, that was NPR's Tim Mack in Ukraine. Well, actually, yeah, in Ukraine, uh, in Odessa, Ukraine, with um, Rabbi Avraham Wolf saying, uh, no, Nazis laughing at it. What are you talking about, Nazis? No, I've never experienced anti-Semitism here in Odessa. Uh, you know, and so far, anyway, the military and the residents of Odessa have been able to hold off the attempted siege of their beautiful, historic port city, not by Nazis, but by Vladimir Putin's Russia. OK. Anyway, in very related news, uh, Marina Avzianakova, a producer of Russia's state run Channel One, you may know her, whether you know her name or not. She was the one who was arrested last week after protesting the Ukraine invasion in the middle of a live 
television broadcast, a live news broadcast. We all saw her, that, that blonde woman who showed up behind the anchor holding a sign that said, in English, no war. And then in Russian, something like, we are lying to you, don't believe our propaganda. Uh, she explained her, quote, spontaneous decision to crash that TV broadcast uh, with that anti-war sign during an interview on ABC News on Sunday, which I sh- should add was also very brave to appear on American television uh, from Russia <laughs> yeah. and, and talk un- unashamedly about what she did. Avziana Kova worked for the uh, for the channel Russia's Channel One as an editor there. After her protest, she was then arrested, and a Russian court ruled that she was guilty of organizing a, quote, unauthorized public event. She received a fine of 30,000 rubles, which seems like a lot until you realize, oh, that's 280 U.S. dollars. Okay, so that's not too bad. No, it's not. But she could still face up to 15 years in prison under... Uh, Russia's newly enacted censorship law. So appearing on NBC News in her first uh, American broadcast interview, Avziana Kova explained her, quote, spontaneous decision to protest what she described as Putin's war on air and stressed that a majority of Russians are against the war on Ukraine. Here were some of her remarks on ABC on Sunday. Uh, and I want to speak uh, Russian language because uh, Russian is a great language uh, of Pushkin and Tolstoy. Uh, this protest, you know, was a spontaneous decision for me to go out live on air. But the dissatisfaction with the current situation has been accumulating for many years because the propaganda on our state channels was becoming more and more distorted and the pressure that has been applied in the Russian politics could not leave us indifferent. When I spoke to my friends and colleagues, everyone until the last moment could not believe that such a uh, thing could happen, that this gruesome war could take place. And as soon as the war began, I could not eat, I could not sleep. I came to work, and uh, after a week of uh, coverage of this situation, the the atmosphere on the first channel was so unpleasant that I realized that I could not go back there. I could see what in reality was happening in Ukraine. And what we showed on our programs was very different from what was going on in reality. And my first decision was uh, to go to Manezhnaya Square and participate in the protests. But I could see that at that time, the new law was adopted that um, could mean criminal persecution of protests. And I could see security dragging people away from these protests and putting them in jail. And I decided that this was going to be a rather useless action on my part. And I decided that maybe I could do something else, something more meaningful with more impact, where I could attract more attention to this. And I could show to the rest of the world that Russians are against the war. And I could show to the Russian people uh, that uh, this is just propaganda, expose this propaganda for what it is, and maybe stimulate some people to speak up against the war 
And I was hoping that my performance, in a way, would help people change their mind. That is the incredibly brave uh, Marina Obstyanikova of uh, Russia's state-run Channel One, speaking through a translator there on ABC on, on Sunday. Add her to the list of brave Russians in the state-run media who are speaking out in some fashion against the state propaganda that they have been forced to echo to the Russian people. You'll recall another Marina uh, that we covered a, a week or so ago, Marina Baranova, uh, the now former managing editor of Russia's state-owned media outlet Russia Today, or RT, which I uh, believe has now gone completely out of business since Baranova quit because she quit because she says that, you know, she, she could not tolerate the propaganda. She was forced to share on the state-run media outlet. She's now afraid that she will be killed. But these are some brave folks speaking out from Russia, from the Russian media about the propaganda that they are putting out there. I do know that uh, today's media environment, uh, you know, mixed with the social media environment, it's it's very difficult to, to make sense of any of this. Very difficult to understand what is real versus actual fake news. You know, what is spin, what is not spin, etc. We wrestle with those difficulties every single day on this show. We try to make sure that what we share with you is based on actual, independently verifiable facts, as opposed to spin, as opposed to propaganda, including when it comes from our own government. And when we make a mistake, we try to correct it up front. But it is difficult, I do know. But I think that uh, I think that this one, at least as long as the bombing continues, I think this one is an easy call. It's easy to be on the right side of history here, despite what you may hear from what I describe as, you know, some in the left wing contrarian industrial complex. Do not be fooled. All right. Let's take a quick break here. Uh, but when we come back, uh, we will turn back to our own crumbling democracy. Thank you. Uh, we run a Sunday tunes every week at bradblog.com. Our friend uh, P. Diddy from Texas, uh, who runs his own blog called Brains and Eggs. He collects his favorite political cartoons of the week, shares them with bradblog.com readers. This past Sunday, he had a cartoon that essentially said, while well, these are the issues facing real people, and then there's a sign that reads climate change, fascist authoritarianism, inequality, COVID, war. This is the Republican Party's priority list with an elephant in a suit and tie holding a sign that reads stop people voting, attack trans people, limit women's rights, allow unlimited guns, belittle science, enrich your donors, facilitate authoritarianism. And then there's a guy pointing to it wearing a MAGA hat with a gun over his shoulder and a T-shirt with a Z on it. That's the swastika-like symbol that Russia has adopted for its war against Ukraine. That guy's pointing to the sign and saying, hell yeah. That's where the Republican Party seems to be right now. And you would think, if anything, as Ukrainians are dying by the thousands and, and suiting up to fight to to the death for their own democracy in a very real fight against tyranny and fascism. You know, that some on the right in this country would come to realize how dumb their pretend fights are for, you know, to not have to wear a mask in a crowded office or to get a shot to help stop hundreds of thousands of their fellow Americans from dying, etc. That you'd think they'd realize how dumb that actually is. Well, anyway... 
the fight for real rights and real democracy and against actual authoritarianism continues after this break with a few stories from here at home where basic rights and freedoms really are under attack. No, not the ones about wearing a mask. Also, uh, speaking of, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report joins yep. us a bit later. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to Brad and Desi's Ye Old Bluegrass Hour here on KPFK. Anyway, yes, welcome back. We are going to Kentucky here. This show, uh, at its heart, uh, is about democracy. But, of course, uh, without accountability... There can be no democracy. Also, without media reform and election reform, there can be neither accountability nor democracy. And I should add, without both media and election reform, we are unlikely to win the war against the greatest enemy we may ever face on this planet, climate change. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Desi's up next with our uh, latest GNR in the next block. So with that in mind, I want to mention uh, that we do have some accountability news to report today that is worth, I think, taking note of, even if it's for a matter that originally occurred seven years ago now. And in many ways, the nation has long moved past it, or at least you would think we have moved past it. But for some of the Republicans during Tuesday's confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown, Jackson sort of hinting that they were not through with this this issue, that they may still like to overturn the Supreme Court's 2015 ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges, which guaranteed the constitutional right to marriage equality some seven years ago now. I think it was the other Texas senator, uh, John Cornyn, who sort of hinted as much. Yes, yes he did. It, yeah. Uh, so it is true that uh, justice delayed is justice denied, but justice delayed is better than no justice at all, I would similarly argue. So uh, remember way back from 2015, remember the name Kim Davis? Yeah, I know. Unpleasant blast from the past. Sorry about <laughs> that. She was that horrible, if you don't remember, that horrible Kentucky County clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, citing her religious beliefs following the Supreme Court's Obergefell uh, decision that legalized same-sex marriage equality across the nation. And she spent a few days in jail at the time for it. Well, she was released after the clerk's office that she headed up uh, began issuing the marriage licenses without her name on them. And the Kentucky legislature eventually passed a law removing the names of all county clerks from state marriage licenses because it was just too outrageous. 
to have the county clerk's name on on them, I guess. Uh, You know, Kentucky. Anyway, uh, for a while, Davis was a media darling of the right, but then she lost her bid for election in 2018 and she sort of faded away. Now she's back. Uh, But happily, in a good way, she's actually facing some accountability. Yes, seven years later for her behavior in 2015. A federal judge ruled on Friday that Davis violated two same-sex couples' constitutional rights when she refused to marry them way back in 2015. According to CNN, U.S. District Judge Dave Bunning in uh, Ashland, Kentucky, issued the ruling in two longstanding lawsuits involving Kim Davis, the former clerk of Rowan County, and two same-sex couples uh, who who sued her. With the judge's decision, a jury trial will now still need to take place to decide on any damages the couples could be owed. Judge Bunning reasoned that Davis, quote, cannot use her own constitutional rights as a shield to violate the constitutional rights of others others while performing her duties as an elected official. Bunning's ruling was unequivocal, he said uh, in his uh, in his reference to the uh, Obergefell decision. It is readily apparent that Obergefell recognizes plaintiff's 14th Amendment right to marry. It is also readily apparent that Davis made a conscious decision to violate plaintiff's rights. Well, thank you, Judge. According to Daily Kos's David K.C., one reason it took so long for this case to wind its way to resolution is that Davis had the backing of a powerful, deep-pocketed right-wing legal group. Yes, the very one of the very same groups that uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has been talking about during uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson's hearings. These legal groups that spend millions of millions of dollars to find cases to bring before the Supreme Court, where they have spent millions of millions of dollars to get those justices onto that Supreme Court, to get the decision they want, to take away people's rights, frankly. The same uh, district court that that found against Davis on Friday had previously dismissed the plaintiff's claims against her, against Davis in her official capacity as a county clerk, but had allowed the claims to proceed against Davis in an individual capacity. Davis then argued that a legal doctrine called qualified immunity protected her from being sued personally for damages. The issue went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. They declined to take the case, and that allowed the lawsuit then to move forward. But this explains why all of this has taken so many years. Yeah. At this point, the only question is uh, for a jury to decide how much the plaintiffs are going to get in compensatory damages and whether or not they should be awarded any punitive damages. Judge Bunning, Uh, in this case, for the record, was also the judge who jailed Kim Davis back in 2015 and ordered her uh, her clerks to issue marriage licenses to same sex couples or face jail time themselves, giving Bunning the distinction at the time of being the first U.S. judge to issue a jail sentence to enforce the Obergefell decision by the high court. As The Washington Post noted at the time, Bunning was an unlikely person to be uh, to find himself in a prominent role of upholding same-sex marriage. Bunning is a Republican judge who was appointed by President George W. Bush and comes from a powerful conservative Republican family in Kentucky. His father is former Republican U.S. Senator Jim Bunning. 
Oh. In, uh, yeah. In, uh, you remember him? Yeah. In his uh, 2015 ruling against Davis, Bunning was uh, unequivocal there as well, saying personal opinions, including my own, are not relevant to today. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, he said the idea of natural law superseding this court's authority would be a dangerous precedent indeed. So good news there. And now the Liberty Council, that's the right wing legal group representing Davis. They said in a statement that they, quote, will continue to argue that she is not liable for damages because she was entitled to a religious accommodation. Which then Republican Governor Matt Bevin uh, who has since been replaced by a Democrat in Kentucky, which uh, Bevin, the governor and, and the state legis- legislature granted. Uh, they added that the case could be headed for the U.S. Supreme Court because, of course, it will. That's how these wingnut groups make their money. And given the makeup of our current court, they may even be successful. We shall see. The group's chair, Matt Staver, said in the statement, Kim, quote, Kim Davis is entitled to protection to an accommodation based on her sincere religious belief. This case raises serious First Amendment free exercise of religious religion claims. Claims, I guess, that apparently trump everyone else's, according to these folks, according to her wingnut lawyer. But for now, at least uh, some justice there in the apparently never-ending fight for equality and civil rights and, yes, democracy, as Desi's great old home state of Texas sadly reminds us again today. In another story here a week or so ago, uh, just after the first in the nation midterm primary in Texas on March 1, we reported an AP analysis finding that some 27,000 absentee ballots had been rejected by county officials across the state in that uh, in that election. During the first time use of the state's new voting restriction law passed in the wake of Trump's pretend his evidence-free claims that the 2020 election was riddled with fraud at the time. As we noted, some voters uh, still had the opportunity to try and and get their county clerk's office to cure any problems with their ballots under the this new law, which requires vote-by-mail voters to include a Social Security number or a driver's license number on the on the envelope when they send it back in that must match exactly with the number on file with the voters uh, registration record, even though many of these voters had registered decades ago to vote. You have to be, by and large, over 65 to vote uh, by mail in most cases in Texas. So a lot of these folks have no clue what number they actually used 40 years ago when they registered to vote. Well, so that was 27,000. We've now got more of a final update on those numbers out of Texas, thanks to AP again. Texas, it turns out, threw out nearly 23,000 ballots. These are final numbers here. Uh, 23,000 ballots were rejected outright under these new rules. That's roughly 13% of mail ballots that were, were returned in the March 1 primary. Discarded. They went uncounted across 187 counties in Texas. The double-digit rejection rate would be far beyond what is typical in a general election, they report, when experts say anything above 2% is cause for concern. This was 13% of ballots. This after Republicans had promised that the new law would make it, quote, easier to vote and harder to cheat. 
But the final numbers recorded by AP lay bare the glaring gulf between that objective and the obstacles, frustration, and tens of thousands of uncounted votes resulting from these tighter restrictions. And they also note this affects uh, counties both Republican and Democratic alike, even though the rejection rate was higher in counties that lean Democratic at just over 15 percent versus uh, Republican counties just over 9 percent. But can I say here that, you know, 9.1 percent is an outrageous rejection rate. And I'm equally offended that Republicans, as much as Democrats, are seeing their legitimate votes tossed due to administrative issues that Republicans in the state purposely put in place. But I guess they're fine with disenfranchising thousands of their own voters. I don't know. Maybe it's fine because they disenfranchise more Democrats than they do Republicans in the bargain. Frankly, I find it appalling and offensive no matter who is wrongly prevented from voting in our democracy, which people spilled blood for, which people are still spilling blood for around the world. When we are fighting for democracy both at home and abroad right now. So Texas was the first state. Uh, to hold an election since these new uh, laws have been put in place. 17 other states in the coming months are going to cast ballots under new, tougher election laws driven uh, by Trump's baseless claims of fraud uh, during 2020. But the uh, rejected ballots in Texas alone, AP notes, far exceeds the hundreds of even possible voter fraud cases that the AP has identified in six battleground states that Trump disputed. They found a few hundred of potentially fraudulent ballots. Meanwhile, thousands have been purposely rejected, legitimate ballots that have been purposely rejected by the state of Texas. In Harris County, for example, that's Houston, one of the most Democratic parts of the state, 19% were discarded. Nearly 20% of ballots were thrown out in elections, especially, you know, smaller local elections that are sometimes decided by very few votes. Far smaller than, you know, percentages like 20%. During the last midterm election in 2018, Texas, Texas's largest county only rejected 135 mail ballots. Back in 2018, this time 7,000 ballots were tossed. These are uh, bad numbers. This is very uh, troubling, and uh, this is going to continue. For all of these Republicans who are claiming that they are, oh, they're concerned about the right to vote, they just want to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. Well, right now, they are cheating thousands of voters from their right to vote in the state of Texas. Yes, they are. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, elections do matter, uh, as, as uh, Desi Doyen also highlights in today's Green News Report. That's coming up next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All 
I hate to say this, Des, because we've been beating up a lot on Texas today. The <laughs> Texas senators, yes. the Texas voter suppression. Uh, unfortunately, your uh, your latest Green News report also kicks off in your home state of the great state of Texas. Yep. I hate to say it. Let's go. Our latest Green News report. The vegetation's gone. It looks like some kind of lunar landscape. It's just an amazing amount of devastation. Texas wildfires continue to spread across the state. Supreme Court confirmation hearings begin at fraught moment for climate action. Plus, temperatures there have been a whopping 70 degrees above normal. Both Antarctica and the Arctic see unprecedented simultaneous extreme heat waves. All of those extremes and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The coldest place on planet Earth underwent an extreme heat wave, and that was nothing like we've ever recorded before. Maybe, but I bet you'll be recording it again. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, bad news for you and your old home state, I'm afraid. Yes, extreme swings in weather in Texas contributed to seven wind-driven wildfires burning in the central part of the state, known collectively as the Eastland Complex Fire. Those fires have incinerated more than 50,000 acres of land since late last week, destroyed at least 50 homes, and killed a deputy who was trying to help residents escape. Mm. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has declared a disaster disaster in 11 counties, fire officials are pleading with residents to use extreme fire caution because the region is experiencing fire weather, exceptionally low humidity, heat, drought, and high winds. One message that I would like to exaggerate and express is that we are not out of danger uh, yet, so we just ask that the community take real uh, sincere caution in your outdoor activities and just help us help you by being safe and cautious. You know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has had to declare a lot of emergencies for climate-related disasters of late. Any reason to believe that he's starting to get it? No, none whatsoever. He's running for re-election. In Texas. The State Forest Service says just over the last week, nearly 180 fires have burned more than 100,000 acres across the state. Scientists say extreme rains led to lush growth of vegetation that was followed by extreme drought and unseasonably warm temperatures, making the new fuel super combustible. I'm sure it was just a fluke. Nothing to worry about, Governor Abbott. Climate change intensified wildfires are also linked to accelerating warming in the Arctic. A new study confirms that dense plumes of wildfire smoke are drifting to the Arctic where the tiny particles called brown carbon absorb sunlight and turn it into heat, both in the air and on the ice, where it intensifies melting. The researchers warn that brown carbon from wildfires is a significant but undercounted factor that may help explain why the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the planet. 
Extreme swings hit both of the planet's poles with unprecedented simultaneous extreme heat waves, described as, quote, unthinkable by scientists. At the South Pole, temperatures over the eastern Antarctic ice sheet shattered records over the weekend, soaring 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, unlike any ever before observed. Man. The Washington Post reports scientists are shocked, saying, quote, the event is completely unprecedented and upended our expectations. Oh, I'm sure it's just a freak. It'll never happen again. At the same time, at the North Pole, the Arctic hit 50 degrees above normal. Um, I'm sure totally a freak never will happen again, right? Meanwhile, in Russia's horrific war on Ukraine, the Russian Air Force has utterly destroyed a steel and ironworks factory, one of the largest in Europe, in the besieged city of Mariupol. Officials say workers tried very hard to mitigate environmental impacts before the site was destroyed, and they say it will take years to rebuild. But a member of the Ukrainian parliament, Lesia Vasilenko, focused on building back better, saying on Twitter, quote, In 2021, that steel plant was a top polluter in Ukraine. Destruction brings creation as the plant will be rebuilt using green technology. Well, nice. I like that. Finally, Monday marked the first day of Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, President Biden's nominee to fill the seat of retiring U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. The confirmation hearings come just a few weeks after the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the biggest climate change case in a decade. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California underscored why Supreme Court appointments matter. In the current term alone, the Supreme Court is addressing cases on issues that are foundational to who we are as a country. It is considering the legal authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to fight climate change. If confirmed, Judge Jackson would not get to rule on that case. But it's another example of how elections have consequences. They do indeed. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yep, you're getting warmer. <laughs> Sadly, yes. So uh, we start with elections have consequences. In the middle, it's elections have consequences. And by the end, elections have consequences. I'm beginning to think you think elections have consequences. I'm starting to see a pattern here on the broadcast. Anyway, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. If you haven't done it in a while, now's a perfect time to do so. Really, stop thinking about it. Go do it. Bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Uh, you can also drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Am I